Welcome to A Chef's Table. I'm Chef Jim Coleman. There's something about the month of March that I always look forward to. St. Patrick's Day for sure because I have a little Irish Blarney in me. But March is also National Pasta Month. I could have a whole year of pasta. It's Bake and Take Month, a great way to help your community. But first, the story of the Irish diaspora begins about 160 years ago when the desperate times brought the first wave of immigration. I spoke with James Murphy, head of Irish studies at Villanova University, about the history of the Irish potato famine and why so many Irish left. Well, that's a, that's a hard question to answer, and I would first off go to the word famine and whether it's the right word. In more recent studies, uh, prefer the word hunger because famine implies a widespread crop failure due to drought or whatever, a natural disaster of some sort, and there's just no food around. But in Ireland, there was a lot of food around in the middle of hunger. As of what it took place, technically speaking, 1845 to 1850, in four of those five years, the crop failed. But I argue that its residue would persist into even the 1990s, maybe, when Ireland, for the first time, began to see a net increase in population, with people coming in, outnumbering people leaving. But the crops came back in 1850, but the, the, the hunger, the famine, precipitated such a wave of emigration that it took 100 and 150 years for it to play itself out. Now, calling it hunger instead of famine is interesting just because, and I forget the statistics, it was over 90%, like 91, 92% of the diet for the mm-hmm. common Irish person was potatoes. So yeah. even though it was not quote unquote a famine, losing an item that is 90% of the diet yeah. is well, that's, huge. That, that's what's really necessary to be understood that in most places, the failure of one crop wouldn't be devastating. But as you say, the population of Ireland, the rural tenant population, were heavily dependent on the potato. They estimate that a male could have eaten 10 to 12 pounds a day. Wow. Uh, hard to imagine that. Ironically, it was very healthy food. <laughs> but, in fact, the population of I- rural Ireland had doubled in the 50 years prior to the famine, which made a large population on small land holdings dependent on one crop very vulnerable when that one crop failed. And a crop failed at a time when other crops were fine. So one of the shocking things you, you see is that during this period, food was being exported from Ireland, which seems probably incomprehensible to us today. But I think it was part of the laissez-faire nature of the marketplace. <laughs> I think it was also a, a, a factor of Ireland's colonial status and the way in which Ireland was kind of looked down upon. Uh, they were an inferior people. It's good to remember, too, that for the 50 years prior to the disaster, um, there was no government institution in Ireland. The Irish Parliament had been disbanded 50 years before because it was radical <laughs> and revolutionary, as was our own in the 1780s and 90s. <laughs> uh, so the only government institution that the Irish could turn to was far away in Westminster, And the political power base being in Westminster rather than Dublin led to a kind of safe psychic distance for government people. So there was really no effective intervention. You and I would probably take it for granted that if a natural disaster occurs, Hurricane Katrina or something like that, that government steps in. But that wouldn't have been the mindset of 19th century imperial economics, you know, especially to a disaster in one of the colonies. Well, a lot of the the philosophies of social intervention that you and I would probably take for granted just didn't exist. For instance, the idea of giving...